Welcome to the Pitch Vision Academy Cricket Show. This is your guide to better cricket, whether that's playing it, whether that's coaching it. We don't discriminate here. All we do is we chat about the game for about half an hour or so. And um, and hopefully somewhere along the way, you'll get some help. Who are we? Well, my name's David Hinchliffe. I look after things. And then helping me to help you are two very fine cricket coaches. The first is the director of cricket at Millfield School. It's Mark Garraway. Hello, Garris. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. I've got slightly wet feet again from uh, being in oh, the man. outdoor nets, but, you know, I got it zipped through. Got it zipped through off the skiddy surface, so I was quite happy oh, with lovely. that. And then I went to dry them out on the pool shelf where it's about uh, 28 degrees in there. So uh, uh, my, sh- yeah. my shoes are drying, but it hasn't quite got through to my socks yet. It's going to say socks on the radiator time, that, is it? That is the next, uh, next portal call, Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, it's the Head of Cricket Performance at Portsmouth Grammar School. It's Sam Lavery. Hello, Lavers. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Lovely um, lovely weather down here now after a pretty grim couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. we're thinking about going outside ourselves at the weekend to see if we can uh, see if we can squeeze in something on the AstroTurf at, at the, uh, the facility we use on Sunday. So oh, nice. very excited if we can do that. Yeah. No, that's quality, mate. Yeah, you get outdoors. It's just, uh, even if it's really freezing, I think because people have been cooped up or not actually playing at all, their enthusiasm oh, yeah. when they get out there is, is, is magnificent. So good luck with that one. Keep us posted. Yeah, fingers crossed. Speaking of facilities, of course, Gareth, um, anyone who's been keeping up with Pitch Vision Academy in recent times over at pitchvision.com will have noticed that you have been searching for ideas for your new indoor cricket facility at Millfield. And, uh, of course, you've done an article this week for us as well to talk about that. But I thought we can't miss this opportunity to talk about some of the ideas that you had given to you over the course of the couple of weeks that it's been up so maybe we can go through that a little bit and just uh and, and just discuss it and see see what uh what your thinking is on and um see what we, what we think about it as well so let's start at the start shall we that's probably the best place to do it yeah it's a i had some quite strong views on what i wanted uh to start off with um but the first ports of call when you're talking to funding agencies and to budget holders and all of that you know you've got to really go in with what your fundamentals are so i had a quite a, a clear mind the interesting thing for me is that the many of the um people who contributed ideas off of the off of pitch vision uh, through the many ways that we asked for it also had the same starting point which i thought was very pragmatic i have to say i was expecting people to come in with all sorts of wacky ideas to start off with but the first few was purely down to you know making sure that you get your space right as in big enough to give you yeah. that, that flexibility um, and uh, looking at it and looking at designs and working with the architects um, we're going to have a, a significant space in which to uh, be able to practice and that's one of the biggest constraints that we have don't we, in, in nets is that we don't have enough width uh, a lot of the time to have enough net areas but also to be able to open it up to small sided stuff indoor cricket or fielding practices um, and equally we don't have enough length for fast bowlers in particular to, to run up uh, run up at full distance you know we've never had a facility at school which has allowed a fast bowler to come off a full run and um, deliver their skills to a batter so that was our first thing so yeah we're, we're very much mindful of that and going to have enough length and width that we can have flexible working areas yeah the, the sight of a fast bowler pushing off the wall is a 
very common one, isn't it? Get right up to the wall as far back as you can. I wonder if I wonder if that's a bit of a psychological thing. Is whatever distance that wall is, I'm going to be pushing off it because I'm going to be bowling fast. I wonder if that becomes a, a becomes a thing. I don't know. That's just popped into my head as an idea. Yeah, and of course, you know, you can do a lot of work, can't you, in confined spaces with fast bowlers. And, I, oh, yeah. and, and certainly watching our guys, and particularly Dan working with fast bowlers, you know, it's almost any space that he can grab, he can do something positive in. So it's not to say that you can't develop fast bowlers unless you have a 20-plus metre run-up uh, in a sports hall. Um, but obviously to have the uh, op- opportunity eventually for them to run up in a live situation against a, a batter was something that I wanted to try and incorporate and a number of the uh, readers and contributors wanted to uh, incorporate and that's what we're going to do the the nets that I use at my club have about a five metre run up for fast bowlers so that even the spinners even the spinners are a bit uh, tight on that one and it has been known um, for someone to open the door (laughs) and then decide to run in from outside I've seen that happen once or twice although it's probably not very safe because there's a step but (laughs) somehow they manage to do it once or twice but then they give up yeah well we had that Hampshire many years ago at the old ground Uh, we used to have uh, Kevin Shine who's the head coach now of lead bowling fast bowling coach for England uh, fantastic bowling coach used to start his run up in the gym uh, come down the corridor past loads of chairs that used to be stacked up because that was also where we used to have our lunch in, in game time as well we had our lunch in the indoor school so he'd run past the chairs past a curtain slightly go round a little bit to then straighten his run up often overstepped by about seven yards uh, and bowl a bumper on the slicker surface in the world uh, at me mostly so that was fun really enjoyed that um, yeah and that was what it was so now we're going to move the chairs out of the way and, and lengthen the uh, lengthen the hall at Millfield which is going to be a right real bonus so that's good so that was a starting point and, and then from that we were looking uh, people were writing in and they were uh, looking at having different net surfaces to so different pitches so the ball would react differently because again indoor practice can become fairly uh, mundane and consistent and monotonous and as we know every pitch that we go to is different sometimes the two ends of a pitch are very different that we're that we're batting and bowling upon um, uh, and you know obviously climate um, makes a big difference you go to the north of England and play you often get different pitches than you do down uh, south and in particular at Taunton with a bit of sand on it as well getting it to spin and then equally when we go overseas so we wanted to have those different conditions that we could adapt without having to put down mats or cones or grippy things which have been great adaptations over the years but it would be fantastic if we didn't have any of that sort of uh, paraphernalia lying on the pitch to try and create different positions and different challenges for batters and bowlers alike and what's the what's the technology like in that area now because obviously you've got the classic mats and you can have different types of flooring underneath the course can't you if you're starting from scratch but how, how are things looking in that area have is that have they nailed that yet is that something which can be done well or is it still quite expensive to get it done properly it's still quite expensive i think any any thing other than the norm you can get you know these normal sports or floors that we see in all of the schools and yeah. they are they are relatively cost effective because they need to be incredibly hard wearing so they're you know they're, they're cost effective because they're a multi-sport element but really when we're looking at cricket we want the ball to be able to grip into some form of 
artificial grass or another or some form of surface which allows the, the seam to do something um, and uh, you can do it either by having uh, different layers of um, weave on the top uh, or you can have it by having different underlays under a consistent weave so you get a different reaction from the, the underlay so there are two options we, we are unsure just yet which one we're going to because that's a bit of a later phase in the in the design process so keeping our options open having a look at some best practice from around the world uh, getting some feedback from coaches that work on the different types of underlay or surface uh, and going from there really I don't know if, uh, how you feel about this Slavers but I, I'm constantly looking for ways to um, slow the surface up because especially on the surfaces that we train on it tends to just skid on skid on quite nicely and even if you put in uh, a good mat and the mat does do some work it allows the ball to spin or, or seam around a little bit more you still get that nice skid onto the bat that that um, you don't necessarily get in early season games or if you're around where I'm playing whole, the, the whole season you know the, the ball's stopping in the pitch most of the season but uh, I don't know if that's something that you've you've looked at is it and, and tried to sort of recreate that sort of that slower pitch stopping in the pitch type type of behaviour of the ball yeah, we are. We, we have a kind of an, a usual format for our setup if we're in a in, in a net session um, at the moment with the senior group, and and that's we're, we're quite fortunate. We've got five lanes in our sports hall, um, but to go with the five lanes, we've got eight mats. So invariably, what we'll have is a couple of lanes are set up on a on a bowling machine, and then we'll have three lanes going with a live net situation, um, and one lane would have one mat, one lane would have two mats, and one lane would have three mats. Mm. Um, we've also got a bit of a mix of the old mats with the black rubber underneath um, and the newer ones um, which I can't remember what they're called but it's a friend of mine's company engineering company that makes them which are um, again slightly different and the mix of the different mats creates different surfaces putting them down one way and the other way up again makes different surfaces so we're trying to constantly have different surfaces to play on so that the bowlers and the batter skills have got to adapt throughout um, and it's not ideal um, because obviously it takes a bit of setting up getting eight mats down uh, at the start and then back up at the end of each session but it is, it is worthwhile and it is, it is really useful and it does um, illustrate the requirement of having to adapt uh, but if you could have that in your floor already that would be an enormous advantage um, not, not just from the fact that you you had different surfaces you could play on, but the time time uh, saved in in wheeling the mats in and out, which as we've we've all done a thousand times plus, um, affords you a little bit more time to, to work on what you want to, which is uh, which is your skills. And what about more the couple of left field ideas that you uh, that you had thrown in there, Gareth, as well? There was a couple of good ones, wasn't there? Yeah, well, there was the. Uh... <laughs> There was off off of the back of that article I wrote about Don Bradman and the way that he practiced was a uh, why don't we try and get a sort of replica of the Don Bradman youth when he was a kid uh, practice area and get it in there which you, do you know what isn't the worst idea in the whole world I have to say um, and I, I've sort of been thinking as I tend to do when I'm on my long drives to various places um, about how you could make a lightweight but sturdy enough cast of uh, Don Bradman's little brick wall um, and his uh, his water tank, corrugated water tank to, to practice against and, and put it maybe in one of those sort of golf 
ball sock nets you know that you can close off um and uh, and have people hitting so yeah uh, that sort of thing because again the cast obviously hasn't been designed yet but certainly those golf nets are, are available we've used them uh, in events that i've done um you know sort of pr events where you want kids to be safe whacking balls around in in that confine in a in a big open space maybe on a huge cricket ground so uh yeah that that could that could work i liked it as a concept the other one which isn't i suppose wacky but it's about heating and having the capacity to heat the hall to extremely high levels in preparation for acclimatization i suppose going into uh going into sri lanka or india or australia as, as england had now i think that's great but but ultimately we're we really want to use our resource financial resource to things that are more uh, specific to the needs of the kids here playing cricket rather than maybe something uh, you know in England and Australia and India might want to incorporate into their national governing body building um, so I, I liked it as an idea I could see it being relevant at a national level but not necessarily uh, at, a, at a school one and then some of the more yeah I suppose more realistic ideas have definitely been uh, useful on top of that have been having the ability as well as running individual nets in a linear fashion straight up and down is having the capacity to have a rail of netting that goes across that divides the net up uh, across as well so if you could imagine maybe um, a spin bowling machine in the end net uh, and a um, you know a spinner doing some one step drills in the next net you could then have not only the other three nets being available for fielding practice but also you could cut off the uh, far end of a hall as well to have another skills practice going on at the same time so um, I, I like the idea of having those multi-directional net dividers uh, because you can create all sorts of different spaces that people can go into do a little bit of work in one and then go to a next and do a different discipline so um, I quite like that too so it's some really good ideas and I really appreciate everybody's thoughts thoughts uh, that are helping us out I think those um, those electric bar heaters are uh, about twenty five quid each, Gareth. So just just chuck a few of them around the edge, yeah, and there uh, you go. We'd need a few. I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure quite about the uh, environmental <laughs> impact of those electric bar heaters, but um, no. I mean, the great thing about this new build that we're having is that the insulation keeps the temperature between sixteen and twenty all times of a year so uh you know whether you're in the middle of winter or whether you're in the middle of uh summer uh, and that's again the often the, the challenge isn't it in indoor centers they can be either freezing cold or boiling hot um and um this this new technology that's out there that's come over from canada allows us to have a more constant uh, temperature which sounds pretty good to me those sort of ranges yeah, yeah, you don't have to tell me about that. Our indoor centre is, is essentially, um, you know, a, a bit of corrugated metal and a, and a four-foot-high wall. So, we, you know, in, in the dead of winter, it's it's absolutely freezing. And we had a club come in the other week, first time they've ever used the facility, and they came in during the, the, the snowy period when it was about minus three outside. And they came in, and it was about minus two inside. And they said... Um, and they said, uh, "Can you put the heating on?" And I said, um, "Well, one, it is um, it's that little, it's that little oil heater over there, uh, and two, it's not going to get any warmer." <laughs> and then they cancelled, they cancelled the rest of their sessions. <laughs> they did one, and then said, "We're not going to do any more. It's too cold." <laughs> Isn't it funny? I mean, you know. Yeah. And what about what about a nip backer that gets you on the inside thigh there? Then how, how would the oh, warm? Oh, that be what. a shocker. Uh, 
I tell you what, actually, uh, the funny thing is with when it's when it's that cold, if you hit the ball, if you go in and hit the first one of the first couple of balls quite hard, that bat just is feels like a lump of concrete in your hand. Let's move on to some questions that have been sent in by listeners to the show or maybe readers to the Pitch Vision website over at pitchvision.com. And uh, we answer the questions, two questions that have been sent in. Then we choose the best question of the week, which wins an online coaching course from Pitch Vision Academy at pitchvision.com. And you can email questions to us for future shows by emailing coach at pitchvision.com. And Robin is the first person to have done that this week. And Robin says, how do I increase shoulder power for hitting more sixes? Yeah, it's a really good question. And and it's come, it's one that I get asked quite a lot actually by kids and, and by players that I work with about, uh, you know, how do, how do I develop a harder hit, you know, through my shoulders. And the bottom line is, yes, the shoulders play a part in that whole strike thing. Um, and it's great if we've got both strength and a range of motion through the shoulders that allows us to accelerate the bat. But that all happens at the end of the kinetic chain. So really, we could have the strongest shoulders, the most flexible shoulders. But if we are not utilising the ground and how we how we develop um, force initially by putting a ground into the force, uh, sorry, force into the ground and then receiving it on the way up and then transferring it up through our body into our shoulders and then across our arms into our hands then you know there's no point in having strong shoulders if we're doing that poorly so it's about a whole body movement rather than a, um, you know being like Chris Gale Chris Gale is somebody who is so strong that sometimes when his mechanics don't work for him he is still able to muscle the ball out of the ground but very few people are like him in world cricket um, very few indeed he is immensely strong I haven't seen him throwing weights around in the gym you can understand that sometimes when he gets a lot wrong it still goes 100 meters or 90 meters which is enough for most most grounds but if you look at a lot of the biggest hitters in the world they're not necessarily bulky or strong um, they're, they're strong enough um, but they have developed a mechanic that allows them to accelerate uh, the bat quickly through um, through the ball. Uh, so the starting point is your legs. In throwing terms, if we are if we lose strength in our legs rather than our shoulders, then it means that our shoulder, when we throw, has to work. 30% harder to achieve the same result than if we have strong legs. So any drop in leg strength and uh, performance of our legs has a huge knock-on effect as that energy goes up, up the body. And that's no different for batting either. So for example, two days ago, I'm throwing at one of our under 16s who looks like he'd blow over in the wind. Um, and I was doing a real quick ball session with him with a, a light sort of three ounce indoor ball and it's winging around his ears. And I thought, well, I'll pitch one up at him now because I forced him back for the, for the last few minutes and I pitched it up and he popped it straight back over my head. And what he did was stabilize his legs, step forward, put a force into the ground, stabilize his legs. Then the energy went up his legs into his hips, his hips rotated. Then the energy went into his torso. Then the shoulders and the, uh, uh, rotated round when they slowed and stabilized, all the energy went 
along his arms into his hands and bang into the back of a ball went the cricket bat and the ball went flying over my head and that is the way to do it yes you can do your, your strength work but really the understanding has to be that a hit is a whole body movement not just uh, the last bit of a chain which is your shoulders into your hands and into the bat so for me get strong in your legs first get strong in your core make sure your shoulders are, are strong enough um, and then you'll give yourself the best chance with a good technique what we're saying there really though is it's it's a lot more of a of a technique thing you've got to have the strength there but it's a lot more of getting the technique and the timing of that whole body movement right if you're going to be powering the ball great distances unless you happen to be very strong anyway yeah you could work very hard on specifically what uh, robin's asked about there you could work really hard on developing shoulder strength um, and over a period of six months you might be able to increase your shoulder strength by 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 percent if you work extremely hard but the impact that is going to have that that's going to have on the range that you can hit a ball and the distance you can you can get it moving off the bat is not going to be anything like the success that you would get if you could invest that six months on developing from a fairly orthodox technique into a really effective mechanic a set of mechanics for hitting a long ball so um at no stage would I suggest that you, look, you don't want to work on your physical attributes because that is also going to have a big impact. So it's trying to make sure you're covering all bases and, and you're not just saying, right, I need to do this one thing to get better. There are going to be a range of things and you'll be able to assess what your ability or, or kind of current level is um, technically, physically, etc. Um, and keep trying to push those areas that are good, but keep but also keep trying to fill in those gaps where maybe you're not so strong. And and, and if it is, if you do think that you actually know this information already and technically you're pretty good at that, um, then maybe there is some work to do physically, whether it's on leg strength, whether it's on rotational power, whether it's on shoulder, whatever it might be. Um, but definitely make sure you've got those uh, that technical side ticked off first of all, um, because that's imperative to not only. Uh, creating that range but also the repetition of being able to hit it over and over again next question is from john and john says how easy is it to learn to swing the ball both ways i can bowl away swing but my in-swing does not swing as much or as consistently can you show me how to bowl both um cool this is a good question isn't it because there are so many different ways that people have found a way to bowl a different ball now very few people can bowl uh, an away swinger as effectively as an in swinger or vice versa. There are very few bowlers in the world that um, uh, do that. You know, probably the closest that we see in world cricket is Jimmy Anderson, and that's taken him absolutely years to, to master that. And at certain stages, he's lost the capacity to bowl one or the other um, through a real intent to, to make, um, you know, the way swinger brilliant. He's lost his in-swinger and, and vice versa. But he would probably be the most masterful bowler at it nowadays, I think, uh, that we see. And it's something that's almost gone out of a game, really, at the, at the top level. And when the ball does go laterally, particularly in test cricket, we've seen people getting bowled out for quite low scores. Um, so it's definitely something that you want to keep working at, John, um, because there's a need for bowlers that can get the ball to go both both ways. The ways that I've seen people have success at, at doing it is you've got the Malcolm Marshall way. And the Malcolm Marshall way was very simple, really. 
in that he would just use physics to get the ball to go the other way. So he would literally turn the shine around the other way. He would point the seam towards, if you can imagine a right-handed batter batting, he'd point the seam towards where a fine leg slip would go um, and would get and the ball would would go in for him. And that was the way, using the physics of a ball, how the aerodynamics would cut through the air and, and, and that's the way that he would do it. I've also seen other people do it with a similar type of grip, but they've actually started it, giving the ball a little bit of a nudge with a with their forefinger to get the ball to, to sort of like push on that line. Um, uh, to start off with, I've seen people that have changed their action. And certainly when I first did, I think a coach education course where I couldn't, I was too young to get the certificate, but I went along and listened in back in the day. And this must've been late nineties, no late eighties, I suppose that one of the things that you did Oof. is you bowled a way swing with a sideways on action and you bowled in swing with a front on action. Yeah. So you actually changed the way that you bowled. Now, you know, again, we wouldn't be recommending that nowadays because obviously injury and all of that sort of stuff could come a, come as a result of that. Um, if you talk to somebody like uh, a Craig McDermott from Australia or a Richard Ellison, who has a fantastic swing bowler for, for England, they would talk about when they're trying to bowl an in-swinger that they would follow through with their bowling arm not going to their as both right arm uh, bowlers not going to their left pocket but going to their right pocket so going down the other side in their follow through um, so those are the ways that I've heard of and seen get success some of which would be now be considered old school so that I suppose the McDermott and Ellison approach there would be considered old school some of which with Marshall talked about in the late 80s but actually would still stand up now Nowadays, and then we see very few people actually getting the ball to be able to swing in and swing out in a Jimmy fashion way, a Jimmy uh, Anderson way, or a Mike Proctor way from years ago, or an Ian Botham way. The other thing to consider as well, and talking with Ian Botham about this, is that the balls were changed. So the ball number of strands on the ball and a number of stitches on the ball changed back in uh, the late 80s. I think it was 1988 they changed the balls in England and he, even he, who was a fantastic and prodigious swinger of the ball, stopped swinging the ball quite so much after that because in 1987 I think there were so many bowlers that were getting 70-80 wickets by swinging it uh, in and out because of the the, uh, the way that the balls were designed and made uh, and they wanted to try and make the battle between bat and ball uh, uh, even more in the ball, in the batter's favour and uh, took some stitching out of the ball and the ball stopped the swing. So there are so many different things. But the Richard Ellison, Craig McDermott way is one way I've seen to do it. Just understanding physics and how we apply the seam of the ball and the shine of the ball into the, the airspace can be uh, the way that I would probably go about it at first. And then the last thing, a number of coaches have talked to me about and a number of bowlers have talked to me about, if you put it in the ball in the hand in a conventional in-swing position and it doesn't swing, then just tinker with it a little bit. Just alter the angle of the, sh of, of the seam slightly until you find the ball's uh, tripping point in the air and then it might start going from there. But if you can get the ball to swing out and in at exactly the same uh, level of movement, then you'd be in the minority. Yeah, I always think that pace can make a difference as well. If you sometimes you can, you know, if you can adjust your pace slightly as well, you can find that that can that can make a difference to certainly how much the ball swings. And I guess if you're getting a little bit of a tail in on your in swing or when you try and bowl an in swinger, but or maybe it's just holding its line rather than swinging away if your natural thing is an away swing, then maybe um, 
going a little bit slower or a little bit quicker might get that little tail or that little holding its line to to go a bit more and, and look a bit more like a big booming in-swinger, which is what you want. <laughs> you know, you want the glory one, don't you? The in-swing in Yorker or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, playing, I think, I think that key phrase that you use there, Gareth, is playing around with it because there is no one set way. It is, it is a very fine and subtle skill and depends on so many other factors. But, uh, yeah, you've just got to muck around with it, really, and find out what you, what, what you can do. You, that using that, getting that seam angle right, getting the pace right, getting the, 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 your arm position right, all of those things are not uh, a, a variable depending on who you are and, um, and where you're bowling. So, uh, yeah, there's no, there's no easy answer for that one, is there, Lavis? It's a very tricky process. Um, what I generally try and talk to fast bowlers about is, where where are, their, where are their fingers on the ball in relation to the ball when it's being released? So are they what I would call neutral? So they're right down the back of the ball, from which position you can just alter aerodynamics fairly simply, really, because you're completely neutral in your release point, which means your fingers are going straight through the back of the ball and you can tilt it one way or the other and you should be able to generate that swing. Now, that's a simple way of doing it if you have that action but very few people do as Gareth has mentioned already so people are generally predominantly positioned um, with their fingers slightly to the right of centre of the ball um, in which case they're more likely to be uh, set up to swing the ball or away or, or some are slightly on the other side and they're more likely to swing the ball in so it's kind of first of all trying to be if possible if you want to swing the ball both ways trying to be a little closer to that neutral position to start with um, from then on, you've you've got that personal personal variation where you think about how the ball leaves your hand and how it leaves. What's the last point of contact with your fingers? Does it come off the middle finger? Does it come off the index finger? Does that change when you're bowling in swing or away swing? And you then think about all the the, variab- the physical variabilities from bowler to bowler of how how similar length are their two fingers? How much there's their middle finger longer than their index finger? because that's going to have an enormous impact on what the last point of contact is between the two. So, yes, you can take advice and say this is how you swing a ball away, but ultimately everyone's release of a ball out of a hand is going to be slightly different. So there is going to be that tinkering with it of changing the position of the seam in the middle or on one finger on the other finger, uh, changing the angle of seam, um, and that's going to be a trial and error process largely. If you can watch the ball coming out in slow motion out of your hand, you might get a bit of information there which shows you actually the ball is coming out and it's scrambling in a certain way and you might be able to realign the seam or reposition it in your hand to help you a little bit but but largely there's going to be a, um, a, a long period of trial and error once you're into a fairly neutral release point which is which is tricky enough to start with anyway. And that is the end of the show for another week. One more thing we need to do before we go is to decide on the winner of this week's competition. The online coaching course from Pitch Vision Academy at pitchvision.com is up for grabs. And the two nominees are Robin, who was talking about shoulder power for hitting sixes, and John, who was wondering about getting the ball to swing both ways. Which one did you prefer this week, Karis? Well, it's a tough, tough week this week, lads, because uh, two great questions. I really like Robin's question. 
um, because he, he came in talking about shoulders. I hope he's gone out knowing that the shoulders are one part of the, the overall system. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully that will help him. He's got some tips to do that. But I'm going to go with John and his question about in-swing because we see so few bowlers being able to swing the ball uh, equally in and out. Let's go back to the, the halcyon days of, of people that can swing the ball both ways, shall we? I know everybody's looking at pace, but why can't we do it at pace as well? That would be exciting, really. Wazzy Macrams. Let's have loads of Wazzy Macrams kicking around. A few in each country, so it's a bit of a contest. Might be good. Lovely. Love, love to see that. Let's get a bit of that going. Now, Gareth, if someone else was listening in and wanted to have their question answered and have their chance to win the prize, how could they get in touch with us? Then give us a call on 0203 239 7543 or drop us a note on That's correct. You can also find us on social media if you contact us through pitchvision.com's social media system. That's the best way to do it. Just um, find the Pitchvision Academy account there. Or you can do it on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pitchvision Academy, or Twitter at Pitchvision Acad. You can listen to this show every week as well. You can subscribe to the show for free. Just do a search for Pitchvision Academy in your favourite podcast app, or go to pitchvision.com slash academy and click on the podcast link to get all the old shows, stream them, download them, subscribe to them, or just read the show notes. Uh, that would be a strange thing to do, but uh, they're certainly all there. That's all for this week. We hope you listen next week. But until then, have a good week. Cheers, Garris. Cheers, Lavers. Cheers, fellas. Cheers, guys. I'm off to read the show notes, David. Yeah, it's just making weird noises. You're still not perfect. No. So, well, you know, you're all right. You're right. Not perfect, though. So, so let, let's move on. Next question is from John. And John says... <laughs> what does John say? What does, what does John say? Let's find out. How easy is it to learn to swing the ball both ways? I can bowl a way swing.